So my guest today is Maren Hinkle, a wonderful actor who you may know from her years on the stage, her long-running role as Judith on Two and a Half Men, so many other popular TV shows and films. She currently plays Rose Weissman on the Amazon mega-hit The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which, as this conversation airs, actually just released its third season. I'm a huge fan of Maren, of the show, the entire ensemble cast. As I sat down with her in the studio, though... It wasn't just her mastery of the craft that drew me in. It was her kindness, her generosity of spirit, her openness and warmth that kind of left me feeling like I had just spent time with a dear old friend. We explored her time growing up outside of Boston, her her love of the ocean and devotion to ballet in the early days that, after an injury, created the space for acting to emerge while at Brown and then eventually take center stage as she navigated building a career as a performer. We talk about the people who've touched down and served as teachers and mentors and explore candidly the tough decisions that came along the way as she stepped into the business of acting, the many learnings, and how family uh, eventually became more of a spotlight in her life over time. And Marn also shares her very human experience with chronic pain and how her time on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel became not just a job for her, but also a source of awakening and discovery and even on some level, peace and ease. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new marketing hub enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personal personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. But it's so nice to be hanging out with you. I, I know it's, 
curious, because you, you've been out in L.A., I guess, for a long time now, right? It's so funny. I was about to say not that long, and then it actually has been a couple decades. Man, <laughs> it's, like it's like nearly like 20 years. Like, I know. You know, you have the kids, and then it's really true that it goes so fast. But New England, I mean, I grew up just outside of New York City. Oh, you yeah. grew up just like Newton, outside right? of Boston, right? Right. It's it's in your blood. It's always in my blood. I feel like I'm an East Coast kid. I don't know that I will, if it, even if I spent, which I don't think I will, the rest of my time on the West. I think I'll always say I'm an East Coast kid. Right. <laughs> It's almost like bragging rights. Were you at the Cape a lot when you were a kid also? Were you kind of like a water kid? Yeah, thank you for asking. You know, yeah. my name, Marin, um, has mer, which is yeah. means of the sea. So I sort of fancied myself a bit of, um, I guess, a fish. <laughs> and so I did. I loved the water. I loved um, pools, but more than that, I did love the ocean. And so did my mom. My mom grew up in Minnesota, and that's the land of 10,000 lakes. But she didn't see, she wasn't east of the Mississippi until she got into um, post-college. And, and met, that's another story. met my dad and headed off to the Peace Corps. But we did. I, my mom and dad worked really, really hard, but they took about one or two weeks off every year, and they did end up renting a place every year in Cape Cod. And they would travel around the different parts of the mm. Cape, and we would just go to these little kind of shacks, almost tiny little cabins, definitely not winterized, so they were, you know, really right, simple. Right. And we just—I have all those memories of sitting in that particular kind of sand— in the brush, sometimes hiding and building sandcastles and looking at little horseshoe crabs and, you know, trying to find sea glass. And I, I do think that kind of, that that part of uh, romanticism or, you know, just kind of that imaginary life that comes out of playing in the sand and mm. by the water is something that probably fed me later on. Yeah. I, I As you're describing that, I'm having flashbacks, actually. Um, I grew up just outside of the city on Long Island and in what would have been in Great Gatsby's East Egg, the actual <gasps> town. So the end of my block was a beach. It was the oh, bay. Lucky. So I, so I, I so get you what you're saying. What cause, you know, and if I was stressed, if I just need to be alone, if I need to think, I would just go down there. And just, I would climb up on top of like the little shack where like the lifeguards would hang mm -hmm. out. Oh, I and love just that. sit and yeah. just... Like nothing had to happen. There was just something magical about being around like the sound and the wash and the feel of the salt air. Yeah. 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 It's funny when my boy ended up, I have this only child and he oh, just, he luckily, you know, loves, loves, loves the ocean too. Um, although he's gotten older, there's something about teenage years where I don't think it's as cool to say you love the ocean. I don't know why. Unless you're a surfer. Right. Right. Unless exactly. you're a surfer. Well, it's kind of cool to say you don't love anything. Yes, exactly. Thank you. That's point, very true. So. Very true. But anyway, I remember it was that huge reality, great check where I thought, wait a minute, I'm so worried sometimes, overtly worried about him until I take him to the beach because I loved, loved, although of course I had to be worried that he would, you know, drown or something. But I did, I did love the fact that he who like loved to run as far and as fast as he could on the beach was just so delightful to see that he could fall and like then stand back up and fall and stand back up and not get hurt. So I loved that about it. It's like it. the sand stuff is cool. Yeah, the sand <laughs> stuff is a good, you know, yes, exactly. Also, there's ice cream. Let's talk about ice cream for just a silly moment. Okay. Which is so my mom, um, again, grew up in the Midwest and she is an ice cream fanatic, and I, I didn't quite realize until I moved to the West Coast or even maybe came to school here in New York that there's something about New England and, and parts from the Midwest, too. They're just the dairy. and But in, in Cape Cod, I think you can't go a block without a different ice cream right, store. Right. 
And so one of the other things I loved about my memories was just sort of like sitting outside with the ice cream cone and it sort of like, you know, sort of like trying to eat, lick it as fast as possible. So my son's first taste of like something sugary mm. was the ice cream cone he had when he was one. And it's the, I just, that's a silly memory, perhaps, but it's one of those ones that will be endowed there forever. That's a, so that's like literally he remembers that. As yeah, his. he does. Well, you know what? I think we took pictures, so perhaps he's remembering <laughs> right. the photo. But, Refreshed yeah. his recollection mm-hmm. a few times. See, there, see, right, that right. was it. You had to like ice cream if you're from yeah. this family. So when you were when you were younger, your so your mom was a judge for uh, like many years. Was she uh, sort of a practicing lawyer before that? Or yeah, um, so my the story sort of of my parents is that my mom had finished college at a Catholic women's college in Minnesota called St. Catherine's, and she graduated quite early. She was young and um, maybe maybe like eighteen ish. My dad uh, had gone to school. He was from upstate New York. He had gone to school at Dartmouth and then had come to law school, straight to law school, and was making his parents very happy with that, but wasn't making himself Mm. happy with that. So he did some student teaching while in law school. Uh, He was actually at Harvard, which, you know, it's funny. It wasn't until I was applying to college that I was asking him where he went to colleges. He just never bragged about such things. And I, he said, well, I went to Dartmouth for undergrad and then Harvard for, grad, for graduate school. I remember, and in Columbia, actually, got a PhD. I was writing it all down. I said, Dad, you know, I'm, I guess I was 17 or something at the time. I said, you never told me that. He said, well, there wasn't any need to, which mm. I thought was so interesting. But anyway, he wasn't happy there and did the student teaching. And, it, and he decided that he would want to pursue more life of an educator and uh, academia. So they both joined the Peace Corps. They met at Columbia. They were doing a teacher's college program that then they learned Swahili and they were learning a a variety of things. And then they went overseas to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania in East Africa for four years. So this would have been early 80s then, right? (laughs) Thank you. That's so sweet of you to say that. That was 1960 (laughs) around. Thank you. That's very darling. Uh, Yes. So they met and and fell in love there. And uh, when they came back to tell their parents all about it, um, they decided they would actually go back and do more work there. And I think my dad actually traveled back uh, before. They, so they got married, I should say that. Mm. And then they traveled back. Dad went first and then mom followed suit. And I think the story is, and I don't know if this is like, you know, these things grow in like the, the years the that lore. follow the lore, right, right? Right, right? But the lore says that she stopped off and I, let's say it was Sweden. I'm just going to throw that out and had a stopover for a day or two or something and um, was not feeling well and was uh, having morning sickness, but didn't realize it as such. And then um, by the time she landed in Africa, who knows if it was exactly when she landed or if um, a day or so later she ended up realizing that she was pregnant with me. So uh, I was born there. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was a little Peace Corps baby. Ah, that's amazing. Um, did you come back fairly, did the whole family come back fairly soon after that or were you yes, actually there for a while? Yes, that's a great question. So I think that we were going to stay longer had I not yeah. been conceived of. But yeah. uh, within the year they came back and... The very place my dad was doing his student teaching was in Newton. Uh, And so he just remembered those were extraordinary, great public schools. And that was a really significant and important thing for them was to raise their children. And uh, at that point, they didn't have a second child. My brother was born two years later, but they decided that that would be a great place to start a family. So they weren't from that area, but they decided that to have children there would be great. Yeah, because your dad eventually, he, he really, he pursued education for... Yes, sorry, career, that was right? your question. Yes, yeah, so so dad then 
He did a variety of jobs in the education world. He was an education advisor to the governor of of Rhode Island. At one point, he worked for something called New England Board of Higher Education, and then he ended up as a dean of a junior college called Fisher. And my mom, that was your original question, had then started as a teacher, and then at some point, um, not long after I think I got back to New... No, I was more like three, I think. My mom's dad passed away, and he had been an incredibly important part of her life, and he was um, the superintendent of schools in her little hometown. And I think she had vowed when she was younger that she would either be a doctor or a lawyer. And mm. and just sort of, you know, wasn't there yet and maybe wasn't even sure about that and was loving being a teacher. But it was right around that time she said, you know, what? I'm going to do law school. And so she went to Boston College, and she was one of the older people in the class and one of the only women. She did really well there. And after she graduated, she ended up clerking for a judge, and then she ended up working in a wonderful law firm downtown. And then that kind of segued into working for um, a variety of other jobs legally and ended up assistant U.S. attorney and then ended up a, a superior court judge. Yeah. When, um, when you were a kid, did curious whether sort of seeing your mom um, build this career and be mm. in a career and, and move through through the career in a way also where there weren't a lot of women in certain positions. Yeah. Did she share that with you as she was navigating it? Or was there a moment where you and her sort of uh, sat down and, and and you learned more about what that was like for her? Yeah, it's, it's so funny. I always delighted in going out with my girlfriends and my mom because they would ask a lot of questions <laughs> to my mom. But it was interesting. I don't think my mom was as open. She's not an incredibly, um, oh, what's the best way to put this? She doesn't talk about herself very much. Yeah. I think she's amazingly modest. And so she she didn't share that much. And she's, and she's very private too. Mm. Um, and perhaps that's partially coming from that generation. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, wasn't a person that was going to th- think about being therapized, for instance. And um, she was also the oldest of four. So there's also that too. You know, you're sort of like, you're not going to, you know, right? You're not going to fall apart ever. You're going to take care of everybody. Mm. So we would all sit down, my girlfriends and my mom, and they would ask questions to her about, like, how would you do this? They were in quite awe of her career. And she was was more open with them about some of those choices. But with me, it, it, she didn't really talk about it very much. And it wasn't until later when I got into college and would be hanging around with some of my college girlfriends, and then they too would be meeting my mom at sort of an older time and say, that's outstanding what your mother's done. And then you kind of do this like turn around and look back and go, yeah, that really was outstanding. Right. And she never, ever complained. And she never talked about the difficulties of trying to do it all. And she, you know, I never saw her sort of, not that this would have been a problem. I maybe would have embraced this too. Like I never saw her cry about or or, or seem incredibly vulnerable about how, how hard it must have been to balance like not being at home with my brother and me at times because her work life was very, very intense. I mean, yeah. she didn't get home. Often she picked me up from ballet at like six or seven or so, but she really worked on weekends all the time. And um, yeah, and she also was cooking for us and she was, you know, president of the student like PTA and she was, 
you know, just doing all sorts of things and incredibly generous and volunteering in the community. And so I honestly think all the time she was sort of a superhero. Mm. And I am so appreciative of that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting also that it's almost like there was a bit of a baton that feels like it was handed off. Um, like this thing that your dad started and thought mm. that he was going to go and then mm. pulled back from. Mm-hmm. Um that and then at a later over. point, like your mom, not that he in yeah. any way gave no. her permission or opened the door. That's right. not what I'm saying at all. But it's interesting how sort of like then, like there came a time where she said, no, actually, this is what I, like, this is the path I wanted. That's so follow. true. You know, I think that wasn't always easy on my father mm. in in terms of like, if he would go to all the sort of, let's say there were holiday parties at the law firm or something, I think that it. My dad has a, a beautiful sense of a self in that he, he, I don't think he would be hurt by that, but I think it's sort of the opposite. I'm not sure that he always felt that others understood mm. that path and the idea that he was home at an earlier hour than my mom was home. And and I didn't say my mom cooked, but my my dad actually shared in the cooking too. And my dad did a lot more around the house than other dads that I knew at the time. Mm. And that was a very special thing in my father. And I always admired that too. And and I said, my mom was so humble. I think my dad, back to that original thing I told you, my dad is incredibly humble. And that's actually a quality that I I always think about in terms of how I've tried to raise my child too, is something that I hope they taught me and I know they taught my brother. Um, But they're sort of amazing that way. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it sounds like you also, I mean, it sounds like one of your big things when you were younger also was, was dance, was ballet. Mm-hmm. When, when does that start to, yeah, to really become happen? a central focus for you? You know, it's funny. My mom joked later, again, I don't know if this is lore, if this was truth. So we did go away and spent uh, like when I was maybe four. So this was a little earlier than when my mom decided to go to law school. So it was right after I think my grandpa had passed. Uh, we were in Italy and Germany and my dad was teaching overseas there. And um, apparently I had so much energy and my mom was a little tired. So she she did turn to uh, a dance teacher and um, put me in with about four other little baby ballerinas. And I fell madly in love. And it was, so again, it had nothing to do with artistry. It was much more fundamental. Right, it's like right. this kid <laughs> is exhausting and she's jumping up and down too much. So I did a lot of dance, partially just probably to get rid of a lot of extra energy, mm. or at least that's what my mom was hoping, right? And then I ju- it just like a little light switch went on about it, when, particularly when we got back to Boston and I auditioned for my first Nutcracker by the, I think the age of five. Oh, wow. And it was really young. And I was, um, it, you know, the music, Tchaikovsky's music comes yeah. on and... As a child, there's no, I found there was nothing more magical for me than seeing a nutcracker come from a little wooden soldier with all of a sudden some fairy dust happening. And then all of a sudden it was a grand man. And, you know, it, to, to watch sort of all the, the candies come into actual dancers' lives and bodies and dance for you, I, it was, I was like hook, line, and sinker in and did that now from that point for another 10 years and thought that I would maybe pursue a life as a ballerina. Mm. That was probably not always easy for my parents. Um, I think they didn't know that much about dance or, or really the artistic professional lives. That was not sort of in their background. So 
I think as I started spending my summers going to the SAB school, you know, New York City Ballet right. School, they were on board, but with kind of like hesitance. Yeah. And um, there was always the encouragement that my studies were going to have to like be, you know, solidly taken seriously and that that would be a great backup. And so it wasn't until I was 15 or 16 that something happened that really was a crossroads in my life where I got injured. And I that sort of sank me into a serious depression, mm. partially because, you know, like a gymnast, uh, a dancer's body is being kept sort of like as in proportions of, usually, uh, you know, I was 16, looked like I was about 10 or right. something, right? And so in that time period when I had the injury, I watched my body in about four months go from whatever, I don't even remember, we don't have to talk about pounds, but from a very tiny little life thing to sort of a, a young woman. Yeah. And that was a very, very complicated time for me. I think I probably had a, somewhat of a depression as a result of that. And my parents didn't really understand what to do with that. And that, 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 that was really a tricky and sad time. And anyway, around that time, I also kind of was deciding I would be looking into colleges. And so I applied to schools. It was junior year and I ended up getting into Brown and that sort of took me off into another chapter. Yeah. I mean, when, when you went to Brown, um, was acting the thing that you were thinking about there or was it kind of like in the background and somehow when you were there, you found your way into yeah. it? Yeah. It's, it's always so funny when looking back, I know we were talking a little bit about our children and and what happens in college, it's just, it's extraordinary, isn't it? You, you, you can't do, plan. You cannot plan <laughs> it's, it's a like, thing. This is what I'm doing. Oh, oh no, no, you're not. You're not. <laughs> like, yeah. and, the, and probably the more that a parent like asserts any kind of like guidance, the less likely that the child will go in that direction. 100%. So my parents, you know, they had a, a bit of a heavy hand at times, I think, on making sure I was choosing good courses and you know, all that. I was taking philosophy and classics and art history. And, you know, I even took physiology and I was thinking biology. And I, I really, no idea. But I did find myself, I, you know what I was doing? I was doing some gentle dance classes because mm. I wasn't never going to be able to dance like I had. And it was kind of, I was having a lot of sadness about that. But that would moved me over a little bit into the theater. And I had done a few plays and I'd been part of some music stuff growing up and musicals too. Uh, I don't have a good singing voice, though. But um, I auditioned for about 10 to 15 plays at that college and didn't get in any of them. And I would just continue to push myself and go watch them. And I was seeing the likes of people like Laura Linney was yeah. there at the time, or Tim Blake Nelson. I mean, extraordinary actors. And Daisy Prince, Hal Prince's daughter, was there. I mean, we had likes of these kids that had some of whom had been on Broadway already. And I think what happens sometimes, of course, is, you know, again, about this yourself and also from your child, which is if, if somebody really special comes into our life and bumps up against us when we're young, that guides us so much. And so I think of someone like Laura as a mentor who, who sort of probably changed the course of my life mm. because what she was doing, I, I had never seen before. I didn't see a lot of plays growing up. I can't even, I think I saw some Gilbert and Sullivan I don't even, I can't even remember if I saw any plays. I honestly don't know if I did. But the, so the first real, you know, I saw plays in high school. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, professional, downtown. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I, I was like jaw dropped as I saw these people my age on stage transform into 
other likes of sorts of folk. And, you know, Ben Shankman was there, this wonderful actor, and he was playing a grandfather. And honestly, I watched him, you know, from his 18-year-old self be a 70-year-old man on stage. And I thought, wait, that's the thing I used to do growing up that I loved, is Ah, transform. And I loved doing it as a dancer. And now I could use language and do it. So it was this whole, like, light bulb thing. And I went, okay, I think I want to do that. That's amazing. It's, I mean... It's also so fascinating to me that you saw that. And I think we all have flashes where we we see moments like that. We see people like that. There are opportunities. And you kind of, you have to make a choice. Or, or, but, or your brain tends to respond in one of two ways. Either one is, that is so astonishing. I could never come close mm-hmm. to approximating that. I'm not even going to try. Mm-hmm. Or that is just so astonishing. Yeah, I just want to be around it and let's yeah. see what happens. Yeah. Um, so it's, I'm always fascinated by which one of those sort of a person is, is a person's yeah. response. Yeah, that is absolutely true. There are plenty of things in the world that I've watched, like, you know, someone plays tennis and I say, wait a minute, I'm not going to go there. That's extraordinary what they're doing. I can't even pick up a racket and hit one ball. Or, you know, I'm that way about watching like a great skier. You you name it. There's so many things I can't do. I mean, uh, just my son is amazing when it comes to like his mathematical brain. And I even look at it and go, I just don't know how. And and I'm not very good at like deciding to push myself through my, uh, my ignorance. But there was something in the way that they were on stage that must have sparked in me the thought, not just, oh, my God, it's, you know, unbelievable and I'm so drawn to it. And But you're right. I'm, maybe there was a part that thought, oh, I remember in my dance life what it meant to sort of give off something to a group of people watching and maybe that's like a, that was like familiar language, mm. right? So mom accidentally threw me into dance class to let go of energy. But what she didn't know is she was sowing the seeds of, of a performer who really liked the feel of engaging and with audience. And this is interesting. And I've never thought about this. My parents, um, my mom grew up in a Catholic uh, family. My dad's a Protestant. And the two of them, there were some interesting things that happened. They were bringing us to churches that were sort of in both, uh, you know, in both ideals of, of thinking and of philosophy and of religious background. And there came sort of a friction moment in which I think it was the priest, to be honest, that said that we would have to make a choice. And I had been baptized, so... I think it was supposed to be that was the choice you were going to go towards. And I then was pulled out of both worlds. Mm. And um, the community I grew up in where most of my friends were Jewish. And I was so interested in Judaism. And they were, many of my friends were really excited to teach me about it. So it was interesting. I wasn't going to temple and I wasn't going to church. But the first time I actually felt like I was in something that felt like those places and that I belonged was in the theater. Hmm. And maybe that's something else that kept me inspired and going forth when I was in college. Yeah. It's so fascinating the way you frame that. Um, I've thought a lot about spiritual traditions and, and looked at and studied a whole bunch of different ones. And one of the things that I've noticed is that Every single one that endures in some meaningful way always has three elements. They mm-hmm. have the congregation, yeah. they have the teachings, mm-hmm. and they have the teacher. 
mm-hmm. different names, you know, depending on what it is. Yes. But it, it's almost like those three elements were there yes. in the setting that you were exploring You're in the context right. of theater. You're absolutely right. That's exactly right. Because I really do have these these memories of sitting. I was going to say the pews, but it wasn't a pew. It was the you know in the audience and seeing, as I said, these peers of mine get up and and sort of lead me somewhere, and I forgot, and I was transported, or I was inspired, or I was uh, connected in a way that was beyond what I you know the other parts of my life. So I couldn't really put words to that. I. I just found myself elated at the end. And then I kind of thought, how can I be part of that? Yeah. And especially coming out of something where you devoted your, so much of your life to, to, to dancing, to yeah. this, to this practice and then had it kind of taken away yeah. in a very short window Really of time. quickly. Right. So that it's not like you have an, a, you know, like a, a window of expectation where you can adjust and prepare That's for right. it. And then it's like, you, you deal with the trauma. And as you said, some level of feeling depressed and then yeah. you find this new thing and it's like, oh. I can step into this sense of community and belonging and purpose. And yeah. so when you, you graduate Brown, yeah. um, you end up in Tish, right? Was that right I after? I did, yeah. Right. Yeah, so there was a, this is funny too, like the road not taken, right? My mom used to always read me the Robert Frost poem and she would talk about, about that in terms of her own life and some of her choices and the moment that she sort of made a different choice and went towards the law. Um, Oh, that's interesting, too. I'll just throw out there at one point before she met my father, she had thought that she might become a nun. So that's just another road. She actually, that road was not taken. And maybe that in this case was good. I would not be here talking to you. Um, But this junior year uh, at Brown was a really significant crossroads time. And I was going to go do a semester in Africa. And ironically, Brown had a program in East Africa in Dar es Salaam, the very place I was born. I was all set to do that. And I heard from a variety of people that there was a really great theater program, a little different than East Africa. And it was in Waterford, Connecticut, the O'Neill Theater Center. So I, my parents were not happy. I don't think about that. So we all drove there and sat there through the day and met the person that was George White, I think, was running the program. And I fell in love with that program. And I, I look back, I go, oh, my God, isn't it interesting if I hadn't done this? So at that, that program, I got in. And I went there for the semester. I did not go to Africa. I think parents had a hard time with it. But that was where I realized you really, at least me, I could really be well served by training, like some serious training. I wasn't going to be the kid that was going to get on an airplane, land in Los Angeles and say, here I am world, right? right. Get me an agent. I know how to audition. I didn't know anything. So I learned a lot that semester I got cast in a small theater company in Chautauqua, New York. Um, and that place taught me that I would need to do grad school. Me, Marin would, not everybody. I know so many actors right. who did not need that. Wouldn't have been right for them. So I did, I auditioned at like NYU, Juilliard, Yale, got into NYU. It was absolutely the right place for me. And I ended up here in New York for the next years and then for the next sort of decade after that doing theater. 
Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style. So maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at signaturehardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit signaturehardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's signaturehardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life isn't always perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. So we haven't had Stephanie on in a bit, and I thought we'd bring her back to share a little love about third love bras and why they're so different. Hey, Stephanie. Hey there. So can we talk about third love? Because until third love entered your life, I never actually heard you telling anyone about bras before. And I've heard you telling a lot of people about them. What makes them so cool? Well, I'm a big fan of Third Love for a few reasons. One, their bras are super soft and comfortable. I like their color and style choices, and they come in so many different sizes. They've actually got close to 80 bra sizes, ranging from 30 inches to 48 inches, and cup sizes from a double A to an I, so they can really accommodate everyone. And I think their Fit Finder quiz is amazing. The questions they ask are so spot on and you feel like you're being custom fitted in a bra shop. And it's great that they recommend specific bras for your size and shape. So I also know there's one specific bra that you have been loving recently. I'm so happy with their online minimizer bra. It has replaced all the others and is my go-to bra on a daily basis. I have multiples and it's nice and smooth and really good at overall minimizing but it doesn't smush my breasts sideways, which other brands do. So I'm really into this bra. And if you're happy, then I'm happy. I also think their um, their Perfect Fit Promise is super cool. Every customer has 60 days to wear it, wash it, put it to the test. If you don't love it, return it. And Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. And returns and exchanges are free and easy, which is pretty awesome. So Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash goodlifenow to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash goodlife for 15% off today, or just click the link in the show notes. Did you stay in touch with... um? Because Laura ended up at Juilliard. That's right. Also, right? That's right. Were you, did you guys still at the same I touch? did, yeah. I, I had a boyfriend from college who ended up at Juilliard. Uh, so I uh, would kind of drive uh, in to visit him and I would go in to see Laura again just a little right. chapter later. I'd see her in her shows then. And I still, every time, I don't see her very often. I recently saw her at the Emmys. We actually yeah. left the room at the same point to go into the governor's ball. And I saw her and gave her a huge hug. And I you don't even know, I'm still a little tongue-tied around her. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever, I mean, you're maybe the first time I've ever actually put out there, like how much, you know, maybe that's what I need to do. I need to write her and tell her like that she's a, such been such a significant mm. part because I love, love, love watching her work. Yeah, she's, it's funny. I, I have this weird flash connection with her um, in the early 2000s. 
I owned a yoga studio in Hell's Kitchen, mm, and I taught. Did. And um, and all of our students came. Like they were in the theater because that's where we were. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who don't know New York, this this is sort of like the heart of the theater district. And yeah. So everyone was coming off the stage, and it was also yeah. actors and singers and dancers. And Laura was while we were there, she was doing a run at a theater which was you know, like two blocks away. And sight unseen. So maybe. she called the studio one day. Yeah. And she's like, "Hey, I need someone to come and teach me yoga." Uh-huh. So for a couple of months, I would meet her up in like the top balcony. Oh, I love. And we would just hang out and practice, you know, like on above all of the seats. Oh. Um, and she was just such a, a gracious, kind, yeah. um, person. And and I remember the conversation. She was also really. She was so committed um, to the humanity of what she was doing, and yeah. also to the to the um, the entire field of acting. She's yeah. like she has very strong beliefs yeah. about equality and equity yeah, and the does. way that things should happen. And I was I was always so blown away by just her presence and her value system um, and her kindness, her just yeah. her, like her grace. Well, her father, you know, Romulus Linney is a not alive any longer, but was an extraordinary playwright. Mm. And um, when I got out of NYU, I wasn't one of those people that had the agent, bang, right away. So there are many years of really pounding the pavement and doing a lot of off-off-Broadway theater. And my first job, I think one of my first jobs, or maybe it was the first one, that paid me a little bit. It was um, a subway token is what we got. At the end, it, it was, um, they gave us a, a little thank you card that said, here's a token of our appreciation. <laughs> it was the signature theater downtown that's now an extraordinarily big, robust theater doing a lot of plays on uh, run by a extraordinary man, uh, James Houghton, who has sadly since passed. But Laura Linney's dad, Romulus, uh, was the first season of his plays because the signature does one playwright for an entire season. And he was the first playwright that oh, they wow. chose. And so I got cast in a couple of those plays. How full circle is that? That's amazing. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. So when, when you're at NYU... Um, I had some friends that were there, probably not at the exact same time for you, but mm-hmm. right around then. That was the time, and I, you know, I've heard stories and where um, Paul Walker oh. and um, yeah. Ron Van Loo. Yeah, you got it. Um, th- th- um, yeah, sounds like naming. you had experience with Yeah, him. well, Paul, see, and there you go. So Paul, you know, different people sort of become these these like benchmarks of educators that guide and teach and inspire. And I would say Paul Walker is and Ron Van Loo, the two you just mentioned, are two of the people that really maybe taught me the most about about how I would want to be as an actor. And I think about this often. I tell this funny story about Paul where we had these fairs um, where after maybe four or five months of doing your work in classroom, you would, I don't know why they called it a fair. It wasn't very fun, but they would have you talk to your teacher about what, you know, you know, what you need to work on and what you, the problems that, you know, you, mm-hmm. you had. And uh, Paul Walker at one point had this, he was like an elf. He was a magical elf and he, he was our, my games teacher. You know this, mm-hmm. right? So he would teach us all these ways and you would free yourself up. And I would do these improvs in his class. And I guess almost all of my improvs, I kept coming back to being a, a very strong feminist. And I wanted to be taken seriously. You know, and I even have to drop my voice. Take me seriously. I'm saying a lot and I'm an, an intellect. And so sometimes they would throw out sort of maybe quirkier, odder, like even people that weren't politically incorrect, you know, that were people that were more frail and people that were, you know, whatever, you know, different walks of life. And I remember he said to me with this big smile in my fair, 
Lauren, I just love what you bring to the class. But it, I think we have to be a little less brown. And I was like, is he making a racist? Yes. Yeah, uh, is right. he being racist about some sort of color What's of my skin? And then he was like, no, I mean the college. And I was like, bing, bing, bing. I think I understand. It was that everything I was doing was like something that I would have believed in while I was at Brown. But, you know, I needed to be other types of people than just like a kid coming from Brown University College at that time, you know? And and I think about that often with various roles I get and, and parts of me that are getting judgmental about playing someone as if I know better than what that character is about something and I can't really portray it in that way. I have to make sure I'm commenting. And then I would think of Paul who would say, no, 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 just be there. Mm. You don't need to be so Brown University. Yeah, it must not have been easy. <laughs> I mean, it's, no, it's, it's funny because it, when you come from this, especially when you come from a place where I would imagine, so you grow up strong parents with strong beliefs who yeah. are, and then you go to Brown, which is like a, a school with a lot of strong beliefs also. Yeah. And, and, and there's this, you know, this essence of empowerment and, and here's the way things should be. But, but the f- fundamental nature of this craft that you have said yes to almost requires you to suspend that. Not almost, yes. requires you to suspend You're right. it. There's got to be this like this internal struggle, which is like... You just touched on something. So when I graduated from NYU, I um, had to present myself to agents and managers and all that sort yeah. of... Let's be honest. I had to enter the, the, the world of the professional actor rather than being the actor of, of you know, sort of the joyful act, actor that was going to just provide you know, the love of performing. And the business side was something I had not given much thought to. And um, they gave us some scenes we were going to do for everybody. And I had to figure out what I was going to wear. And I was a person that liked to cover up my body. And so I would choose these dresses and clothes that were quite baggy. And um, people would comment on that. Uh, People meaning maybe some of the teachers at the school or such. And I was so resistant to it. Again, I was still holding on to, like, I can be exactly what I want to be. And I don't want to wear some stupid tight dress. And sure enough, I entered (laughs) the world saying, I'm not going to do it that way. And sure enough, guess what? Many a time, whether it was like meeting new agents and trying to, you know, create a new relationship with them or going to casting directors and sort of hearing some feedback, I was actually told through sometimes through those new agents I was trying to get signed by that you are not you, you got to actually change what you're dressing like you have to sell yourself more you have to I mean I was testing for a couple tv series at one point a few years later and they actually said like somebody has to take that girl shopping so we can get her into some clothes that show off the body so back to what you were saying these are things that my mother and father wouldn't have the hardest time with. And I too was having the hardest time. And Brown University was telling me, you know, no, I'm not going to be that kind of person. And yet the the business side was asking me to sort of fit certain ideals or molds. And um, there was talk at one point, I was discussing this yesterday, actually, with somebody and they were like, really? This, how many years ago? I said, well, it's been a couple of decades, but there was named talk, should we change the name from Hinkle? This was not something I came up with. This was an agent saying, you might be, you know, cognizant that like this sounds a certain way and this is going to limit you. And I was like, what are you talking about? What are you really saying? And then there was stuff about my nose. My nose is a little, you know, what, different, not tiny or something. And there was a talk, well, had you thought of maybe taking off a little? Or have you thought, 
I once got feedback that was at a very, very high level. I almost got this very, very important job. And they said, you have, these were the quotes, this was, you have bones in real life, but not on camera. And I remember like sort of sobbing and saying, I don't quite understand. And they were like, you know, cheekbones and jawbone. And these were, these were things that I had, um, I had reckoned with as a dancer, like the physique is so all important there, but I guess I had hoped maybe that the world of theater and then later the world of TV and film would allow me to have a body that was not so sort of one type cookie cuttery, but I was still finding that I was bucking up against some of these things that were, were really difficult for me to reconcile. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you, how do you process that? I mean, at any age, but especially at that age. Well, since this is a place where one speaks frankly and vulnerably, I I suffered at that point from an eating disorder. And I think that was something that um, my mom, I ended up telling my mom about later, many years after um, my girlfriends that I was living with ended up being extraordinary and doing an intervention and guiding me towards therapy. So I had to really talk through and work through that. And I think, so you you ask, you know, how how did I get through that? I think it was... A lot of therapy, a lot of ad- admitting that I was um, lost and and needing support from others so that I could turn around when I felt so hurt by the business and sort of share with others in group therapy too, other people, other actresses that were going through similar things. But I still, I still kind of grapple with these things, as I'm sure pretty much all all people do, and. And particularly in this business, I know a lot of women. Last two nights ago, we had a premiere for the TV show I'm working yeah. on, Maisel. And at one point, I'd gone through the red carpet. I had circled back to say hello to the rest of the cast members. And someone yelled out, hey, Marn, could we do a couple more shots? And I thought to myself, well, I don't have a publicist right now. So I guess I should go back for more of these photos that are supposed to be helpful for something. And I went back. And what I heard was, could you turn around? And so I turned around, but then I was confused. Wait, why am I, I don't even know why I'm turning around. And, and this particular male photographer was like, I actually just want to get the, your back. And I was like, well, I, and, and the, I guess it was that they wanted the back of the dress. But I was so, I was so caught, like, am I going to really right now, like, answer to the objectification of like either the body or the dress or the bottom or what? Didn't, I'm 53. We don't need to see, like, we don't need to see that from anyone really, but whatever. It was just an, a moment where I went, wait, it, it still happens that this business asks of me to do things I don't necessarily want to do. And the question is, what am I comfortable with? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's, a, it's the type of thing where everybody draws their line in the sand or not. That's and, right. and I would imagine as you grow, as you become more of an individual as you explore your own humanity, your own values, um, that that it's like an evolutionary process. And at the same time, you've got to evolve and figure out what, you know, like your own inner sense of what's okay with me yeah. while still working in this bigger container of an industry yeah. that has been known for generations to have a certain lens and value set. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's, you know, like, powerful that now in the last couple of years, we're starting to see some cracks yeah. in that. But um, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I can't imagine it, at the earliest days coming into this thing where you've devoted yourself to something, you've studied the craft, you've, you've educated yourself, and then you step out into the actual world and say, okay, um, I want to do this. Yeah. And, and the world says, well, the craft matters. Yeah. And there's something more. <laughs> yeah. And then 
kind of having to navigate that and and build a career mm-hmm. doing it. And, you know, and go home back to that extraordinary woman we brought up earlier in this interview, my mother. And I feel like there's still a little girl, right, that we always have that side of ourselves as to our parents' child. And I often think, you know, would this role that I'm about to potentially do make my mom happy? And sometimes, or if I'm going to audition, they ask me to do something that feels uncomfortable with this, you know, there's the barometer. Would my mother feel comfortable with me doing this? And, you know, sometimes I'd also have to let go of some of that. But um, but other times that that has been okay to to maintain sort of her integrity and and think that I hopefully that's been passed on. Yeah, a certain barometer that stays mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. You end up um, doing the the whole <laughs> backstage, you know, all the interviews, um, reading for casting agents, and and over a window of time, navigating your way into finding an agent, and then starting out on, on, in theater, I guess mostly. I did for a lot long time, right. just theater, and then um, the first jump to TV was soaps. Yeah, well, that was crazy. Which is, it seems like in New York, especially, it's sort of like yeah. a rite of passage for so many people. Yeah, that or doing the law and orders. <laughs> right, right, one right, of the right, other exactly. is your first yeah, kind yeah. of like, right? Um, yeah, that, that was odd. I think I was doing a lot of, as you just said, I was um, doing, you know, readings all over the place. Any place, never, it, who cares? No, you know, nobody needs to pay me. I'll be anywhere just to be like, even read stage directions. And at times I was, for auditions, I was just saying, I'll be the reader for this. And somebody must have kindly told, some casting director's assistant must have told the casting director that told the agent that worked in the same office. And then somebody hip pocketed me. And then I sort of climbed through the ranks, took a number of years. And um, it was that first agent, I think, that sent me out for Another World. And I did, I didn't know, I had never watched a soap opera, ever. And I remember showing up and I, we didn't have a TV in New York. I didn't ever watch TV. So I did, and we didn't have computer stuff that I could kind of go and like YouTube it. So I showed up on a, a soap opera set with, that was as far removed from anything I understood <laughs> as I don't even know, like basket weaving or something would have been for me. But I, you know, well, yes, you, you do put on a costume there and you do memorize lines and you do speak to someone and create as much like a live connection as you possibly can. But I didn't do it very long. And I guess the one thing that was quite good about it was as you uh, I'm sure all everyone has heard this really about soap operas, they move quickly. Mm. And so you get those scenes and you have to do a lot of pages. And so it did teach me to actually not be as delicate and as, um, you know, like sort of, I want to say thoughtful, but just to actually jump in a lot, a lot deeper and a lot quicker than I had been used to in my life. I was a very careful person in my performing. And I think that that allowed me to see that sometimes throwing caution to the wind was was going to be helpful in my work. Yeah. I mean, so it, is, is it almost that because you're you're literally, you're, you're filming and airing every day, yeah. you know, five days a week. Yeah. It's almost like if you throw caution to the wind one day and you're not in love with how it landed, yeah, so you have another day and another day. Exactly. It's not like there's one film and yeah. like it goes out into the yeah. world. It's just like so many t- opportunities to keep doing different things. Yeah. I think about that word, like being precious with work and I, I think if one looks back at, you know, your younger years often as an actor, you you would see, not that I have worked, looked back at my theater work, because it might be at Lincoln Center Theater, you know, in some library, but I have not seen it. But I would say if I were to be able to be able to do such a thing, I would say that most of my work probably early on was very precious. And I think that the older you get, 
that that you do realize that you must not hold on that way that that being too careful and too too much of self scrutiny and and that that kind of you know judgment of self is is never going to be helpful you really have to have a freedom there to play and the greatest people that i was starting to work with were the ones that had looseness that's what i think about just mm. loose and just open lois smith i worked with a couple of years into my first you know forays into regional theater and she's exquisite she's an exquisite performer and she every single moment you know people say this about pacino working with him on stage every single moment is different from the one that was there the night before and and essentially looking in her eyes, I just knew we would fly, and I would. I think I was so not used to actually like giving up what I had controlled and decided before, and she really taught me. Well, that's not going to work right here. If we mm. hold on to something on the ground here, we're not we're not going to give to the audience in that way. That was originally what led me to being an actor in the first place. You yeah. know, but it's such an interesting reflection, not just on opening to that within. The process of acting, but isn't that life too? Yes, it right? is. That's parenting, isn't it? Yeah. That's that's choosing to embark on life, as you said, in the deepest ways. It's, you know, I I um, have had some moments uh, in my later years. I I now experience chronic pain, and I think a lot about what it means. And you know, I've done a lot of meditation now, and certainly I've looked into mindfulness and and other thoughts of what does it mean to actually let go. Right? What does that really mean to let the body sort of breathe in, breathe out, and release? And I think for so many years, starting as a ballet dancer at age five, I held onto that ballet bar like it was a life force, and I kicked my leg up, and I I just wanted to have that point as you know strong as it could be, and do as many pirouettes as possible, and be the perfectionist, and make sure that I got the the A that would help get me into the college that if I were going to go that route was going to make the parent happy. We know we've heard all this before, but it it really was incredibly important to to start saying, okay, be fallible, be vulnerable, make the mistakes, and the mistakes will be will be part of the celebration of your life and of others' lives too. Yeah, I think when we when we're around people who have some way forgiven their own humanity mm-hmm. and just they just show up and they're like mm-hmm. like me hate me mm-hmm. I am who I am and I'm just I'm completely at home with that. Yeah. To be that person I think is miraculous to be around somebody who who has reached that place long enough where you start to wonder if you could be that way too. I think is such an important thing. I agree very, very much. And, and luckily, I, you know, I found that I think I had so much of a focus on what it was going to mean to be an actor that at times I wasn't allowing other parts of my life to, you know, kind of to bloom. And one of the great things, of course, about having a child is that they don't care about what you do for a living, do they? They don't, nor how much money someone makes. It's really so much more basic and more beautiful. And, and the idea of us holding hands and me getting him an ice cream or running along the beach with him, that was the beginning of me sort of not needing to focus so much on acting. And then what was lucky was sometimes the acting just sort of became something much deeper and richer as a result of what I was experiencing, of course, yeah. not needing it the same way I did. Right. It's like you're asking less of it. Yeah. And that allows you to 
offer more. Yeah, I think right? so. I mean, or just to show up with less of a feeling like I have to be a certain way. Yeah. Because um, you're getting what you need from different parts of, of your life. Yeah. So one of my favorite things when we travel is finding stuff that is truly unique or even handcrafted, both for us and to give as gifts. That is one of the coolest things about Uncommon Goods. Their team goes out into the world, scours the globe, looking for the most unique, creative things they can find, things you can't find anywhere else, and they bring them all to you. Uncommon Goods is a website that has unique, fun, beautiful things for you, for your home, your garden, your office, pretty much anywhere or any occasion. A few examples, check out their benevolent brownies, not just because they're good, but because the story behind them, they're made by Grayston Bakery, which is a B Corp that hires workers who typically wouldn't be hired by most companies because of their past or present circumstances with no questions asked. Or if you love tea and hearts or know someone who does, like my wife, Stephanie, I also just found this beautiful little box of joie de tea heart-shaped tea bags for her at Uncommon Goods. Uncommon Goods also has a social mission. They donate $1 for every purchase and have given more than $2 million to nonprofit organizations like RAIN and the IRC. They support good causes like paid family leave, a fair living wage. They don't sell products made with fur, feather, or leather, and they support small businesses and local artists. And Uncommon Goods wants to help you discover your new favorite thing. They're offering our listeners an exclusive deal on your first purchase. Just go to uncommongoods.com slash goodlife to receive $5 off your first purchase. That's uncommongoods.com slash goodlife to receive $5 off your first purchase. Or just click the link in the show notes now. From there, you end up um, on a very long running show. Yeah, that <laughs> sure, long like navigating show. in and out, starting around mm-hmm. 2003, two mm-hmm. and a half men. My son was nine days old when I went to work on oh, two no and a half men, right? No kidding. Actually, I did the pilot episode while I was pregnant. So sometimes if I've ever shown him, he has not really seen any two and a half men, nor does he, you know, he wasn't that interested in seeing a multi-cam sitcom. That's no. not his, what his, he's a Dungeons and Dragons kind of guy. So, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, he... I point to that pilot episode sometimes and say, you were inside me there. <laughs> but um, anyway, I did. I started working when he was nine days, told him, took him to set for the first two years. And I was there every day learning, you know, how to, I was not considered, I didn't think a funny person. I really actually still don't think I'm at all funny when I sit with the rest of my cast for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I have people like Alex Borstein and you know, Tony Shalhoub and, you know, Rachel Brosnahan, they're so funny. And, oh, Kevin Pollack, Caroline, et cetera. And I honestly, if you give me text, I can, that's comedic and magnificent, like I, I'm getting right now, or or that I got on Two Enough Men, I can I can be funny because that's written for me, but I, that's not my, my stuff inside. It's not naturally my place. But on Two Enough Men, I got to watch people that were on top of their field. Like I look at John Cryer, that is, you know, a Jerry Lewis type. That is a person that has a physical comedian. He can, he can do it all. And I loved being there watching that. I mean, it was, you know, it was a complicated time. I'm not sure that the show, um, you know, was easy for, for me as a person who had just given birth. I, there were a lot of parts of it that were, you know, someday when I'm older, perhaps I can understand it better. That, but I, But I have to say, I learned a lot about about how to be a better comedian on that show. Mm. But it was long. 
It was a long time. And yeah. there was, a, you know, there was some eruption on that show too, as we all know. And there was. <laughs> um, people's egos and the fragility of that. And um, that was interesting to, to watch and to, and, to, and, to, and to see the vulnerability of both kind of, of those extraordinarily talented men that were obviously having some conflict that was interesting. That was like watching conflict get aired publicly when all you kind of wanted what for both of their sakes was that it would be a private thing that was, you know, worked through. Yeah. And, and it had to have been odd for, not that we need to really go down that no. rabbit hole, but, um, you know, just for you to, to have sort of like moved through that experience um, while at the same time, you're like, this is, this is my craft. This is my art. This yeah. is my form of service. And I have this other life outside and, and, um, you know what was great about it is that it, 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 because you're doing multicam sitcom, which is when they have the yeah. different cameras, you have a studio audience, it did keep me in a world that was theatrical. Huh. And so oh, it really did allow for audience participation because you're working in a rehearsal like a little mini tiny play. And then one night right. a week, you're performing it for people. And so it kept that kind of muscle exercised. And so I would take some of the money that would go towards the, we had $200,000 worth of loans. My husband had gone to law school. I had gone to graduate school, as you know, undergraduate school. So that money that I was making there was going to you know, say thank you to the education. And then also people used to say, how are you affording to do a play? Which I did every year at that time. And I said, you know, the money that I'm making on TV is my support for my play. Yeah. So I did keep um, at the theatrical world and and balanced it. So I was doing that sitcom as well as getting to do a play and then as well as being a mom. So I was sort of doing what I said earlier that my mom was able to do, which was kind of incredible. I was trying to do a lot, but but part of the sitcom is allowing you to get out early every day. And the kind of hours I have now on television, I would never have been able to see my son much. Yeah, I mean, it's it's figuring out what you know what matters to me during this season. You got it. And then how do I piece together these things so it just so it works? And sometimes that means doing something in no small part because it's making us okay financially That's and exactly taking care right. of things. And sometimes you do it because your heart just swells so much you cannot do it. That's right. And like the you know I, I think the art in there is trying to find the blend where it all kind of feels good. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, let's move forward a, a, a little bit um, yeah. and dive into Maisel. Yes, I'd love to talk um, about Maisel. We're hanging out here in New York City. Um, yeah. We are actually um, on a block which where the show has actually been filmed. Yeah. You know, I remember walking out my front door and seeing all the trailers yep. and, and all these stunning cars from the 50s mm -hmm. parked on the street. And I was like, what's going on here? And um, seeing the incredible costumes, how does the marvelous Maisel show up for you? Like, how do how do you end up? Yeah. So I haven't really talked about this very much, but I just alluded to it, and I'm feeling in the space very safely with you to to share this. So, in 2014, which was a year or so after um, Two and a Half Men actually had finished, I started to feel. Uh, a kind of pain on the left side of my body in the pelvis and I ignored it and I pushed through. I had been a person that after I had let go of dance, I was a person that loved to exercise in other, other ways, not dancing, but uh, you know, I was, I ran, I did stationary bike, I did all sorts of stuff. And I just kept thinking I was having kidney stones, which I'd had before. 
And I thought, okay, well, one way you deal with pain is you, is you just, you, you know, you plug through. And, um, I'd been taught that a little bit. My grandmother, my mother's mother was sort of fierce that way. She always said, if you, if you seem sick in the morning, rather than come downstairs in your pajamas, come downstairs in your clothes and you're going to be fine. You'll begin your day. So very, that's what I thought. Very New England. That's very New England. <laughs> exactly. So basically I, you know, sort of grinned and, and bore it. And I, um, did a pilot and um, was in so much pain in it that I actually ended up taking a little bit of Percocet to get through because that's what the pain doctors were giving me. And my mom got so afraid about all that, but I literally remember being like almost slightly high doing it. And I'd never done any drugs. No, I was like a little clean kid this way. And when it finished, my mom, sort of so afraid for me, said, okay, now you're gonna rest this, whole, you know, you're gonna get better. And the body didn't get better. It got worse and worse and worse. I became incontinent. I couldn't move. I couldn't sit. I couldn't be, I couldn't do anything. And it ended up that I de had developed some kind of nerve disorder that was a kind of pelvic neuropathy that uh, was like sharp shooting shocks mm. that kind of go up and down the limb and around and into areas that are all part of the fabric of sort of our core. And that got worse and worse for about two years. And I wasn't able to work. I wasn't able to go support my son the way I needed. I wasn't able to even connect with friends. It's funny, I was always a person that read the newspaper. And for those two years, I, I don't know what happened much. It was like a blackout chapter. And um, I went to Mayo Clinic. I went to Cleveland Clinic. And I did a chronic pain program. I, 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 I was in group therapy. I... And I, anyway, I could go on and on about this, but basically when I got back at one point from Cleveland Clinic, I realized that I was living with a kind of chronic pain now. And I um, was called by my agents who had been so respectful and not saying, we're going to drop you in the midst of all this. And she called my agent, Allison Levy, whom I love, and she knew about everything. And she said, are you ready to maybe try auditioning? I said, you know what? One of the things I learned in chronic pain was actually, I need to, to distract myself from this. So she she sent me out and the first audition I had was for something called Speechless, which I ended up booking. And the second audition I had, which was, was for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And um, I flew back and forth for the tests for the show for Maisel. And each time I, I kept thinking, oh, just do it, just get on the plane, just do it and get back and you're not going to get the job anyway. And so it was like one foot in front of the other. And then I called, I got called back and then I got called back a third time and, uh, and then I booked the job and I didn't even know if I was really going to be able to do it. I didn't tell anybody. I just, I just said, you know, just show up and see what happens and something will happen that hopefully will, will present itself as the right path. So, um, I, that was, I just, that was a long answer to something that was almost like, I don't know what we call that exactly, but it was an extraordinary gift that I was given that has helped with my pain. I still live with chronic pain, yeah. but I am blessed that on the set, when I'm engaged with others, the pain, or right now engaged with you, I don't feel the pain the same way. The second we'll finish this interview, I will feel the, the sharpness of the pain again. But um, anyway, that's how it came about. And I am an incredibly lucky woman to, to be working with these people and to, to have the gift of this role. Yeah, it's um, the relationship between uh, 
where your mind is and what you experience is a fascination of mine. Um, I've talked about this on the podcast um, mm-hmm. here and there. I, I have tinnitus, so there's a loud sound in my head 24-7. Yep. And, like I know the date, you know, in 2010 that it touched down. Yep. And and I was introduced to, I was w- working on a book um, on at that point on how people navigate high stakes sustained uncertainty and how yeah. it destroys some people. Yeah. But other people somehow are able to harness it to do great work. Mm-hmm. And I was always on the side of getting destroyed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was always called to make things. Mm-hmm. And I always had trouble sort of like working with those two ends of the spectrum. And along the way, I get this thing in my head, which everyone just says, maybe it goes away, maybe it doesn't deal yeah. with it. Yeah. You go on the internet and everyone's like, well, you, you don't want to go on the internet. That's right. <laughs> um and, and I, right. I turned to, I started to explore probably similar things to you. I, I looked at chronic pain yeah. and mindfulness and CBT and exercises yep. that would teach you how to slowly over time engage and change your circumstances, change your environment, engage in activities, interactions, but also be, begin to have power over your attention, your yeah. awareness at any given moment in time. And what I realized was that um, when I was deeply focused on something, it wasn't there. Yeah. Like you said, the minute I stopped, yeah. if I looked for it, it was immediately oh, yeah. there. Right. And the fascination of mine is, you know, where's the sound? Where is the pain? Yeah. Is it is it the source of injury or damage or yeah. is it or is it the brain? That's exactly what I I, I it's like Groundhog Day. I yeah. I ask myself that almost every day. You'd think I'd get sick of asking myself that, which I am, by the way, sick of asking myself. But you'd think I'd gain more knowledge of the understanding of the answer to it. But it's still, it's like a baby bird getting born or something. I still ask that question. Thank you for asking, because then I know it's shared and must be shared by so many of your listeners, right? I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, I think also- Not that I wish upon- no, but but also like you know you whether it's 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 an, an injury or physical pain or whether mm-hmm. it's something psychological, at some point nobody gets out yeah, without right. experiencing something that you know, and and I'm I'm just I'm fascinated and um, optimistic maybe hopeful that the more we know about how we can harness um, our awareness, that even if circumstances don't change, even if the stimulus that's that's creating you know, the the response that leads to potentially suffering remains um, for life that we can somehow find ways, maybe not to make it go entirely away, but for windows of time yeah. to find some sense of equanimity. Yeah, I hope, I yeah. hope. Look, I, I, I'm feeling lucky to be here in this space with you because this time has allowed me some distance from what yeah. I what I feel all, 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 pretty much all the time, but not all the time. I shouldn't say all the time, but... But it, it is interesting how much it changes you, as you know. And it's interesting what you said about like that moment, the click. I know exactly when it happened. I know when I felt the pain for the first time. I, I, I know it didn't stop. The sound of it then just got louder and louder and louder. I remember sitting in the, in the group therapies with people, many who were um, had, had an addiction to opioid use at that point. I did not have that, but I remember being a person I didn't recognize because I, I sat in talking to doctors at Cleveland Clinic going, just give it to me. Just give me the opioid because this that I'm feeling, it, it, I, need a, I need some space from it. And I can't find anything except when I take something that does put me to sleep. But, and, but anyway, so it, I totally understand what you've just said. But 
I, I have to say how incredible that my, my ability to work or, or the gift that Amy and Dan gave me by accepting that I could play this role was the first time that I went. Beside, by the way, m- many moments with family and friends that do kind of get me a little way. But, but, but a workplace, I didn't think I was going to work again, ever. Mm. At, I guess I was 50. I thought that was done. But I, I've been very, very lucky that I've been able to show myself that I can actually work and yeah. have pain. So anyway, yes. Yeah, so, so this show, this is a New York yeah. show. And I had spent all those years in New York and then moved to L.A. to work in television there. And I was brought there because I was working on that show, this extraordinary show that Marshall Herskowitz and Ed Zwick did called Once and Again. And then at that point, my husband and I had laid down roots and then we had a child. So I wanted to get back to New York as much as I could. And I thought it was really funny that the show I get cast in this great period piece is set in New York and it's going to be shot in New York and it's going to be shot in the part of New York that I had left, the extraordinary Upper West Side. And it's a very familiar tale to me. As I said earlier, um, I'm not Jewish, but have always been very interested in Judaism. My husband's Jewish, my in-laws, my, many of my friends. And I, I, these people felt very, the, the Weissmans, Rose Weissman felt very familiar to, to me. She's not just, you know, parts of my mother-in-law, parts of my mother, but she's Zelda Fitzchandler who ran the NYU grad program when I was there, or uh, my ballet teachers when I was younger, or, you know, who knows, Lois Smith a little bit, or the elegance of Laura Linney, right? Or, you know, all these women who I think are so exquisitely uh, inspiring to me. I don't find myself similar to Rose. I'm not recognized at all. I don't look like her. I'm kind of a, I'm a very sloppy dresser. I'm a disheveled person. I'm disorganized. I tend to be very fearful and quite neurotic. I don't think Rose, she has little droplets of those things, but mostly she's got more strength than I have, I think. She's got a different kind of backbone. And I've loved escaping into her. Mm. And then I've also loved what Rachel Brosnahan, playing the lead of Miriam, is is offering right now to our whole culture that has opened up to watch her. This is an extraordinary performance. This is one of those ones, you know, like Marlo Thomas did or, you know, who else that Carol Burnett did that um, Lucille Ball did. You know, these are amazing. Meryl Streep, you know, I just can name like... Rachel is 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 kind of unbelievable to me. She's funny and um, like uh, incredibly intelligent and deeply strong, and just giving something that is awe inspiring. Yeah, I mean the this the show is amazing. Um, you know, we're, we've been fans for from the first day. It's you know, what's the first season, the second season? As we sit here, season three is about to drop, um, yeah. and it's, you know, it's interesting because um, the last season was, it felt like it was largely about your character. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, not you. entirely. No, they, no, everybody had the their narrative stuff. arc. But yeah, but there was this, you know, Rose, who you play in this show, um, even though the show takes place, in, you know, in, in the late 50s, and, and I guess we're about to go into the 60s in season three, she is a woman in that show who I think is probably about the age you are in real life That's now. Right. So it's interesting to sort of like, and that was part of my curiosity and you kind of partially answered it, which is, you know, like she was in last season. There's, there's this whole arc where she basically says, I'm, I'm, I'm cooked. I'm done. Like this yeah. isn't okay. The way that I'm living my life and what I've given up kind of vanishes herself to Paris. Yeah. 
and you're sort of in this window of your own life where you're sort of it's it's like a moment of of reckoning of rediscovery of who am i and what am i actually capable of mm -hmm. um and and how much do i want to push mm -hmm. finding the answer to mm -hmm. yeah there were <laughs> some of that stuff i think gets lost on me because you know when you enter a role yeah, you don't yeah, right. recognize <laughs> the similarities to one's own life and some of that stuff was not lost on me at all like when i traveled last year to paris when they sent rose off and i got to arrive in a city that i had spent a tiny bit of time when i was younger but not much and i didn't speak french um but i I landed and spent a lot of time, like maybe a week and a half alone, wandering the streets there and really reflecting on th the, the place I had been when I, I had come there as a child. And then I had dropped in for like 24 hours once when I was, before I got married. And I kept thinking a, a lot about who I was then versus who I was now and then what I want to dream of being. And, and then all of a sudden we'd be shooting scenes and the lines that would come out would sort of be the mirror of what I exactly had said the night before, you know, as Marin and now suddenly as Rose. And, and that was, I, that was, you know, quite exciting to yeah. have those two worlds kind of get married for a moment. The, it, it's interesting also there's, um, I'm somebody who's, who's sort of, um, for some reason, I focus on physicality a lot also mm -hmm. when I interact with people, when mm -hmm. I watch things. Mm -hmm. And there seemed to have been in those, when when you were shot there, and I don't yeah. know if you were felt it, there seemed to have been a like a shift in your physicality. Oh, thank you for noticing that. That's so interesting. So Donna Zakowska is uh, this um, genius costume designer we have, and she comes up with, I mean, I could spend, have spent the whole hour talking about her and I could spend, you know, like 10 hundred hours, but, uh, she, this is very indulgent. They did this, but I, I'm going to throw it out there. They threw, they flew me to Paris and had me do a set of costume fittings there prior to actually shooting. And the reason was because she felt like the sort of the new side of Rose that we would see would be so, uh, she wanted it to be somewhat unfamiliar to the audience. And she wanted the clothing to represent the changes, of course, that Rose was going through. And so I remember trying things on and asking her if we could have jackets that didn't cover her as much. And we thought about it for a while. And then I explained, I think I need Rose to express her body in a way that the audience can see. And she was so receptive to that, which, mm. you know, not all designers would have been. They would have said, oh, no, I had an image. I had drawn it, you know, drawn it up and we're going to do it exactly as rendered. And uh, she really listened to that. I remember in particular, there was a scene where I showed Tony's character, Abe, the apartment that I was dreaming we would move into. It's right before he says, no, we've got to go home, Rosie. And um, they had a, a particular coat for me that would cover up the body more. And I said, is there anything that we could throw on that mm. let my arms kind of, and she said, let me get it for you. And that like, it, th that is just an example, you know, and there were, and, and all sorts of, of the clothing really did represent that in a new way. But thank you for noticing that. I do, I do think Rose probably took dance when she was young. That's my choice I made mm. or that Rose also had some parts of her that maybe thought about performing even. Um, she certainly went to art school. She certainly, it wasn't studied art. And, and so I think in language and 
you'll learn something in the next season in two days or three days when the show drops. And when people hear this, it will have dropped. But there's a part of her past that is so not what I thought Hmm. was going to be Rose. But the way that I've justified it for myself is, wow, she had to go from that to what we know of when we first met her two years ago. So if someone can can have that kind of transference, then then she has a fierce ability for rediscovery. I love that. There's a line that Rose drops, which Marin also obviously yeah, drops. Yeah, I guess I said it. <laughs> um, in, in, in Paris, that of the entire season was the one line that stayed with me. And what's really interesting is given what you've just shared about what you've been through over the last few years, I wonder if it actually has more meaning than just Rose uttering it, which is here I'm shatterproof. So funny that you say that because when I got to that line, which is in was in that apartment I was just telling you about, where I asked if I could have, you know, clothing that allowed her body to be more expressive. Whenever I got to that line, I got quite choked up. And... um Amy really wanted, again, I use the word backbone. She wanted the backbone to have a little bit more fierceness. And so when I saw it in its final version, because, you know, you do what, four or five, 10, 15 takes. And I, I, I kind of knew that I would probably not see the vulnerability that I had offered to the to that because it was hitting so much in a Marin way, but she saw it in, in something that was a, a bit different. And that's something I empower her to do. You know, that's the way it has to be. She's the visionary. And, um, but anyway, thank you for, for that because I do think that was a, a very resonant line for something that was going on in my own life at the same time. Yeah. This feels like a good place for us to start to come full circle as well. So as we sit here in this container of the Good Life Project, um, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? I think um, openness and generosity towards others is the good life. We didn't talk about how I, you know, I said Paul Walker and Ron Van Loo taught me so much or Laura Linney taught me so much. And part of the reason they did is their hearts were so open and they were such teachers and they were so uh, selfless in so many ways and with their time and their care. And so I guess to live a good life, I find, because I've loved so much in in my delight of being a parent is is to hope that I'm here in, in service of others and, and, having a sense of grace to be able to to be there with others and connecting to them. Mm. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.